on Plato's Dialogues concerning the trial of Socrates. This is Jack Donovan. You're listening to or watching PH2T3R Pater, the Journal of Solar Culture. And I'm here with C.B. Robertson, as always. And today we're going to discuss uh, some of Plato's dialogues about the trial of Socrates. And when I asked uh, Chris about, I'm, I'm head to, heading to Athens uh, in a week or so, and uh, I asked, you know, and we, we should read Greek stuff this month. What, what should we read that's, that's philosophical, that it's, you know, the whole group can read? And Whole Order of Fire actually read uh, some of these dialogues. And it really stood out to me. You know, I just like, okay, cool, we'll read those. And I didn't expect them to feel as timely as they do. And uh, so many of the issues that we're dealing, I mean, that's the cliche of, of reading the classics. Like, it's always true. And it's always, uh, you know, like, uh, you'll see that you compare it to your own life. I feel like I'm in like, you know, junior high school. Uh, but it, it really is true in this particular case, especially with the, we see, uh, you know, all these show trials that are happening right now. And the trial of Socrates is definitely, uh, you could call it a kangaroo court kind of trial. I mean, it's the charges are very strange and, and you know, like, um, making the the impiety and making the uh, uh, the good thing things seem less than the uh, the, the lesser appear to be the greater yeah 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 I mean very very like uh, that's that's kind of a made-up charge uh, you know it's kind of, but uh, so you see that and you also see it was very striking to to see the level of persecution that was happening there because you know when, when we talk about I think you know especially this age of this golden age of philosophy in, in Athens. Uh, I think it has this gilded image in the Western mind, where it's like, oh, they had it all figured out. We'll, we'll build all of our democracies based on their democracy, you know, which is, you know, a democracy that was just men of a certain class and, and uh, who also, um, you know, executed people they didn't like for uh, saying the wrong thing. Uh, so it feels very contemporary in, in, in a lot of ways. And so that was really, uh, that really struck me. So, and they're, they're short dialogues and they're very digestible and there's a lot in each one. Um, so I'm going to start we have a lot to unpack with all these, because we've been talking about these for a couple of weeks and I know Chris has a lot to say and I have a lot to say. Uh, but, uh, I'm going to start with, uh, Euthyphro and, uh, First, when you when you listen to it on Audible, don't get listen to the audio samples because there's one with an English guy who has the like English equivalent of a Boston accent. He's like <laughs> Easy Flow, Easy Flow was the, the, like the whole time. I can't like see the word now without hearing Easy Flow. Uh, but uh, you there's the one story. guy. There's one guy on YouTube who I, he he has that like uh, that like baritone african-american voice that's just perfect nice uh, he does he does uh i think euthyphro the apology and credo he doesn't do fado unfortunately okay so yeah yeah on that one yeah that sounds like it would be a lot better than this one i actually because i hated it so much i downloaded a different version from audible today <laughs> to listen to on the elliptical while i was getting ready to, to do this podcast uh and it was much better uh so but the basic premise of Euthyphro, obviously, there's a lot to it. Um, but the basic idea is that uh, Socrates runs into this guy who's going to court, and he is going to court to bring his father up on charges for murder. Um, 
And so they have a discussion about this and it, it includes several concepts that I think are relevant. And then we'll get to the, obviously the trial of Socrates themselves, but it's kind of a nice lead in to that because they're talking about impiety and he's, he's uh, Socrates is saying, Hey, if you know so much about piety and this is what the gods want, maybe I should be your student. And then I can get off of these charges because you'll know, be, or maybe you know, they'll prosecute you and say, cause you told me what to do. Mm -hmm. uh, which is, you know, obviously Socrates is a little bit of a troll and we'll get to that later. But uh, <laughs> um, it was interesting in the sense of, uh, I think Euthyphro's idea of justice, now piety is a different subject, but uh, his idea of what was just actually would feel very familiar to an average American. Uh, it would feel less, you know, to more patriarchal society uh, bring your father up on charges, I think, is a little bit more intense. But um, that is equality under the law. Like everyone right. has the same law no matter what. And I think that most Americans actually would feel pretty comfortable with that. Like, oh, you're, you're, your dad killed somebody, dude. Uh, yeah. You know, like, um, and now it was a slave. So, you know, again, uh, a different kind of society altogether. But uh, it, the the idea obviously and Socrates even things taken aback like really you're prosecuting your dad just because you think it's right yeah and you know and, and yeah, like I said it does sound to be honest I feel like he has the Euthyphro has the better argument except for he messes it up in terms he he convolutes it with what the gods want well I mean the that's that sort of becomes the subject yeah because you know the defining feature of Socrates's wisdom if we can call it that, is that mm -hmm. he doesn't know. Yeah. It's that it's that epistemic humility. And what we have in Euthyphro is an extremely legally and morally complicated situation. It's like this is, you know, there are plausible arguments for either side and you could make a strong case in either way. It's kind of hard to gauge. And yet Euthyphro seems extremely confident. Mm -hmm. Um certain even of his own knowledge of the good. And it, it almost feels as if Socrates is not pressing him on the righteousness of his action, but on his certainty specifically, like, how can you know that you're on the side of the gods? And then it becomes a question about what is piety even? Is it uh, what the gods love or, you know, uh, do the gods love it because it is good. And, um, I mean, we're in the solar idealism uh, worldview in a very fortunate position because we get to say, well, those are identical. The gods are idealized conceptions of <laughs> ourselves uh, in, in many ways. They're, they're ideals that essentially are the good definitionally and unlike with Christianity, that's not tied to existing physically, which is nice. Uh, right. Well, I mean, it's there. it's uh, there are, are they're really manifestations of our, our idea of what's good, right? So it's already yeah, it's a self-answering question to a certain extent. Like, well, that's yeah, that is what I think is good because that's what the God represents. Uh, right. So that's um, it, 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 we don't have to wonder what the God is thinking because it, yeah, because that's that you know that's the joke I always make about uh, these religions. I think so many people. Um, like to, I guess I've said before, put God in their pocket and they want to say a thing, but they want to have God say it for them. 
right. uh, so that they have so they have backup. Uh, which is you know, which is what my my three year old does with his toys. I'll say, you know, I don't want the snack. The the T Rex wants the snack. Like, oh, okay, it gets more complicated as you get older. It gets more advanced, but the form is kind of similar. So, or maybe not more complicated. Maybe. Or not more complicated, <laughs> as the case may be. Um, God says that you want to just hold up a little thing of Jesus and be like, Jesus says that you want to do that. <laughs> right. Um, uh, that yeah. that would make a really funny parody, actually. <laughs> that would be really, if I was a funny person, we were just talking how I like, I, I actually am a funny person, but I don't do like do that as a pu- uh, public image thing. I don't like to do comedy. Uh, but uh, man, that would be hilarious. TikTok videos is like someone holding <laughs> up a little Jesus thing and be like, Jesus, dancing, you're not. <laughs> I'm, I'm sure they've done that. Sure someone has had to have done stuff like that. But yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, yeah. but but and it's a it's a way to get out of making, you know, saying this is my opinion. This is my position. It's like, no, I'm just following the, I'm just following orders as they might say in, in, in certain contexts too, because God doesn't have to be supernatural. It can be civic perhaps. Um, yeah. Well, it's a little bit too, like uh, the discussion you were having the other day about uh, imp- being imprecise with your words intentionally to, to, mm. uh, to, so that you aren't culpable for exactly what you said. Like you can, you can leave it open-ended, which is, I mean, really what you do when you write a scientific paper too. I mean, not, not a scientific, I mean, let's like that, that's probably the wrong word, but uh, an academic if you're paper. Good enough at that. You can become a lawyer and make money doing that. Yeah. I mean, well, I mean, let's, <laughs> if you, <laughs> which is the, the predicament Socrates was in. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's a lot of what you do. It, it's, it's bad writing in terms of, uh, you know, if you're going to make really something impactful, which I still remember when that word became, everybody started using impactful, but uh, no one used it before a certain point. And then it started saying, now I say it. Uh, but uh, if you really want writing that's going to last, stand the test of time, um, you, you just say what you're going to say. But if you want to not get taken down for it, you use all these qualifying and weasel words and all kinds of stuff like that. And that's a lot of, a lot of academic writing is like, cause oh, they don't yeah. want to make a firm statement unless you're making a firm statement. Right. So you like, this could also have be this way. And this could also be this way. And you just kind of like weasel it out. But, uh, um, yeah. which you kind of have to do in some scenarios, you, you only want to commit to what you want to commit to. But, uh, it, it, it's, uh, anyway, it, kind of a sidebar discussion, but yeah. Well, and that's also relevant to, to Socrates because mm-hmm. uh, I mean, part of the subject of, I know we're jumping from Euthyphro perhaps to apology. I hope that's okay. But mm-hmm. um, you know, we don't get to hear the prosecution side, but we hear from Socrates describing the, the prosecution that they, they are very skillful rhetoricians and they accuse him also of being a skillful rhetorician interestingly enough and he his opening argument is basically saying it is absurd that they would call me a skillful rhetorician when they speak in this very skillful lawyerly manner i will you know you'll have to forgive me because i'm going to speak in the only way i know how which is how i speak in front of the banking tables in the marketplace um and he he describes it uh literally with the word a technos, which means without skill, unskillfully, but it's a, but it's a, 
sort of pejorative of the people who speak with skill, with artifice, right? With uh, you know, flowery embellishment. Um, it, it's like saying, "Oh, you." It would be like saying, "Oh, you speak like a lawyer today." You know, yeah. It, it, there, there's a a subtle insult in saying, I, "I'm going to speak directly." Right. And um, at one point later on in the dialogue, he says, "It is the most translations will say." It is my duty to speak the truth, and it is the honor of the judge to determine the truth. But the two words for truth are different. He says, it is my duty to speak DK, which means directly, mm -hmm. um, to, to speak with justice, we might say. Directness and with justice are kind of interchangeable in the very old Greek. And it is the honor of the judge to determine aletheia, what is uncovered what is true. So there is this equation of directness with um, justice, with moral righteousness mm -hmm. um, that Socrates really embraces. And he's very good at it, but that's not good in the context of the law. <laughs> you know, it's more important to have this skill, which again, as you pointed out in scientific journals and in academia, uh, you're going to do a lot better if you write or speak with artifice, uh, with technos as opposed to a technos. Absolutely. Even though it doesn't last as long. Uh, Socrates has been with us for what, 2,400 years now? It's a pretty yeah, good. Yeah, I mean, that's why, I mean, uh, there's someone who said, uh, I think it's a terrible person actually, but uh, um, someone said once that a writer, a writer should really be able to hang himself. <laughs> and and, uh, and uh, like good writing and writing really is like putting myself out there. And I think that that is a little bit true. Uh, uh, I, I, yeah. Scott Adams said something similar uh, just a few weeks ago. He said, the thing that makes comedy, good comedy funny is the sense the audience gets that the comedian is in danger, is in getting himself into trouble. Um, and you hear this, especially with someone like Bill Burr. Yeah, uh, who's very good at walking right on the line of saying something very offensive that will get him canceled. And every once in a while, a comedian will go one step too far and actually get canceled. But uh, the, yeah, the the thing that is humorous and amusing and, and eye catching perhaps is the the people who who uh, bring themselves right up to that line. Well, what's funny about comedians, and then we'll get back to this because we could go yes. that route before. Yeah. But uh, what's funny about comedians is that uh, you know. Weirdly, Anton LaVey always said that comedians aren't really funny, <laughs> like, which I always liked and appreciate because I never, I've never like really been a comedy watcher, yeah, guy. Um, because I mean, ninety percent of those times they'll say things because they are closer to being in danger because they're on stage. Your friend will say something funnier than that to you, or, or way over the line of that, because you're you're really speaking directly. You know, yeah. like you're really speaking fairly and you don't have to worry about all that other stuff. So I, I think, you know, a lot of times friends have like a darker or more like, you know, like funny takes because things that are funny because they're true. Yeah. But you, you don't say them in a room to like 200 people, <laughs> you know, so yeah. like they're a little funnier sometimes. Well, there's, there's so much in in comedy that is that. And I think this applies to rhetoric more broadly and not just comedy which maybe ties back to our, our dialogues here, but that like it works 
because the audience has accepted certain premises. Mm-hmm. But but like if you hear, for example, someone who doesn't share your politics trying to make jokes that are in the political domain, you're like, like I'm not even offended. It's just not funny because yeah. the premise just like doesn't work. And I mean, studying philosophy kind of does that to a lot of comedy too. I have a hard time watching comedy because it's like, I get that about like everything. <laughs> yeah. I mean, yeah. I, I know exactly um, what you're saying. And I was thinking yeah. it as you started to say it, you know, like it's yeah. like watching Saturday night live. Now it's like unwatchable uh, yeah. because like, that's what they're saying is like, can you believe they don't believe the things that we believe? <laughs> yeah. Pretty that's much. literally all it is. And, but yeah. for the same thing, I mean, I feel like they probably feel the same way about the Babylon B. Very probably. Probably. Yeah. Well, it's just, <laughs> yeah. it's the same thing in reverse and exactly. And, uh, like I know you, uh, this would be a funny mirror because you just brought up Anton Lavey, um, C.S. Lewis, yeah. in one of his books, I believe, the Screw Tape Letters, brings up there are four kinds of laughter that you can generate. Uh, one is from joy, which is like the best kind or the worst kind because it's written from demons' perspective. There, it's like that, that's bad, which means it's good. Um, then there's the uh, th- there was. Um, I can't remember the second one. The third one was the joke proper, which actually takes skill to do. Um, and and like that, that can be amusing, at, but it's also kind of corrosive in some ways. But the, the fourth one, which is the, the worst or the best, if you're a demon, was just a flippancy. And that's you speak as if a joke has been made, but you haven't actually pointed out an absurdity. You haven't actually observed anything intelligent you've just spoken as if something is ridiculous but without doing the work and it feels like so much of humor today within these tribes is just flippancy there's no actual intelligence to it at all if you listen to like stephen colbert or some of these people but even outside of comedy that's how a lot of discourse in general goes where people have conversations like can you believe x and there's no deeper analysis of what x is they just accept the words at face value in the way that certain comedians will accept the premises at face value because their audience does too and you know at a like a metaphorical level socrates was probably jarring to a lot of people because you know they accept these premises and certain jokes are funny and he's like you know, not seeing what's funny about it or says, Oh, I can see why that's funny, but would it still be funny if we truly analyze this, uh, <laughs> this premise here? And suddenly everyone's like, oh. so, so you're saying he's, he's not really fun at parties. Is <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, it depends on your nature. I'm supposed they, they yeah. depict him in the symposium as, as quite the life of the party, but, uh, you know, maybe, maybe Plato was, was uh, mischaracterizing that a little bit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, well, to wrap up, uh, just I thought about Euthyphro for one more thing. Mm-hmm. That if I were Socrates, what I would have said to this kid uh, who's prosecuting his dad is like, "Why are you mad at your dad? What's your relationship with your father like?" Uh, I, I think I think that's the because yeah, it's just a strange. It's not that his father shouldn't be prosecuted, but the fact that his son is prosecuting him leads me to believe that there's uh, that there's trouble at home. <laughs> you know, such, like a, such an archetypal dynamic isn't it yeah 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 there's there's yeah. trouble at home like like you're mad at your dad for something else because that yeah yeah sure that's wrong and that, whatever but uh like yeah. i would i i would feel like that would be the, my first question yeah, like in that thing like not not 
not taking it at face value as to like, yeah. oh, your stated your stated intentions are your actual intentions are generally not that's not usually true with most people. They they they're doing things for other reasons than they state outright to begin with. Not always. I like to think that I mostly am truthful in what I say and I'm doing it because I'm saying what I'm doing. But you know, and also a lot of people to be fair don't understand their own motivations. Yeah. What was that? Are very self aware. What was that line from Nietzsche? What was silence in the father speaks in the son? And I've all often seen the unspoken secrets of the father emerge in the sons. Something it was, it was from the tarantula's yeah. line uh, section. I'll have to go back over that again. But um, yeah, that's it, it, I think a, probably a very incisive uh, thought to have in that dynamic. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's, it's always especially. Especially when he has that certainty in such a in such a complex legal and moral situation. Yeah, I mean, or if I was a cop, uh, actually, if I was a cop, I'd be like, uh, you know, or a lawyer or whatever, like, like. So, if your father goes to prison or gets executed, do you become? Are you first in line for his estate? <laughs> like i feel like these questions are like at the top of the list Cree bono yeah yeah exactly like this yeah. that's I would, that's what i want to know uh that you know like oh that's interesting <laughs> yeah but uh because he clearly had slaves and he obviously has some wealth and uh so yeah which is um, interestingly also one of socrates defenses when he's accused of corrupting the youth and he says if i were to corrupt the youth and i have to live alongside them how would I benefit from that? <laughs> right. Um, which seem not to persuade the audience, but again, it's yeah. hard to speak if you don't share the premises. Um, yeah. Well, let's get into uh, the apology a little bit more, uh, like mm -hmm. uh, uh, trying to think what I should reach for in it, but we should move on to that one. Cause we did our youth for home. We should go on the apology, uh, the trial itself and what he's accused of. Um, you, you brought a point about his accuser that I thought was interesting early on because you, you were like i think his computer is from 4chan oh yeah. yeah well um i mean at one point socrates i i wish i brought up the the exact quote but um he he, he in two different sections he basically says and it's related to this this you know fleshing out what would it look like for me to corrupt the youth in the city that i live in yeah. um he basically tries to demonstrate that the uh that the accuser is not serious is is having fun and basically saying oh socrates is a is a skillful rhetorician uh let me let me see if i can get one over on him and uh and trap him in his words kind of as a joke and right. Soc this is socrates's allegation of um of the accuser Miletus, if i remember correctly yeah Miletus. And, um, and as i was listening to it again today he was described as having. Uh, they actually described him physically mm. in Euthyphro, uh, because he he, br he brings him up early. I was I was just flipping through it trying to find it. Uh, he had like long straight hair and and kind of a. I don't want to over. Right, but kind of a, a a distinctive nose. Oh, an aquiline nose. Yeah. Yeah, something like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like so, he had a, which those are the cool ones. Really, they're the ones that look cool in statues. If it, it, yeah. I believe the aquiline is the one that has the, the, the like kind of 
comes out and goes down. Uh, um, but uh, so I, I found the two quotes. Uh, if okay. and, and granted for everyone, this is these are Socrates' words. So mm-hmm. you know, in his defense, we don't hear the other side. But he says, uh, "quote." He says that I am a doer of evil who corrupts the youth. But I say, O men of Athens, that Miletus is a doer of evil. And the evil is that he makes a joke of a serious matter and is too ready at bringing other men to trial from a pretended zeal and interest about matters in which he really hadn't this never had the smallest interest. And then he continues later. He says, you are a liar, Miletus, not believed even by yourself. For I cannot help thinking, O men of Athens that Miletus is a reckless and impudent uh, and, and that he has written this indictment in a spirit of mere wantonness and youthful bravado. Has he not compounded a riddle thinking to try me? He said to himself, I shall see whether this wise Socrates will discover my ingenious contradiction or whether I shall be able to deceive him and the rest of them. For he certainly does not appear to me to contradict himself in the indictment as much as if he said that Socrates is guilty of not believing in the gods and yet of believing in them, but this is surely a piece of fun. End quote. So he's he. It's hard to tell if this is a rhetorical maneuver by Socrates because he sometimes does things like this, at least in the other Platonic dialogues, which are not Socrates, but um, or if he really is accurately trying to psychoanalyze this guy who's saying you're accusing me of mutually exclusive things. Do you or like, is this a joke? Um, because I mean, the reason Socrates is the way he is, is that he's essentially on a mission from uh, Apollo to find mm-hmm. a man wiser than himself. So being accused of not believing in the gods. And he says, he's like, are you accusing me of not believing in the right gods or of not believing in gods at all and being an atheist? And Melita says, you're an atheist. So she's like, my my raison d'etre for the last 35 years or whatever has been a holy <laughs> religious mission. And, you know, corrupting the minds of the youth, he says, like, of course, how would I benefit from from doing that? And and you know, who spends all these time with the youth? And he he does this this amusing sequence of questions of like who benefits the youth? And Miletus' answer is ultimately, well, well, basically everyone except you. And Socrates is like, well, interesting. Okay. <laughs> Especially the judges, Miletus says in the court. Uh, it's like, could not get more like ass-kissing than, than that. Like almost, almost in your face ass-kissing. Um, and, and Socrates just like rips that apart, or at least seems to. Um, do you think that uh, – and I've, you've read more about this than I have. Obviously, I've read through these and, and some background material. But, um, I mean, do you think that Socrates is sincere in his uh, dedication to Apollo? Or do you think that he's dedicated – or he's using that as a smokescreen to be like, clearly, I'm – you know, like yeah, – like, because I mean, his argumentation seems a little atheistic in mm. most cases. It doesn't seem to, I, 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 like in Euthyphro, for instance. I mean, he's arguing like the gods are terrible, do terrible things, and they do terrible things to each other. And, and right. uh, you know, like so, like what do they even believe, and what are they even about? Is a lot of the question. And so, like, I wonder if if that's his 
out because you know, like if you're if you're say you're in medieval England, I mean, sorry, medieval like uh, like Renaissance uh, like Italy, you know, there's only so far that you go. You don't say God isn't real, <laughs> you know, you, but you do yeah. say, but God sent me to send you like it's a, you, you, the way you frame that is, is a little different. Well, yeah. And it's funny because that argument actually has been made by other people too, okay. um, about other people. Uh, the, maybe the most notorious instance in Western civilization is um, Augustine mm -hmm. in city of God, making this argument against the, the, the Roman pagans by saying, look, look at how ridiculously your own depictions of your gods are. He, mm. He's basically making that challenge. August, uh, Augustine was a Platonist and Augustine was borrowing perhaps from the Republic where Plato makes similar arguments and he puts them into the mouth of Socrates and says, these gods, the way these are depicted could not possibly be real gods. So, like the 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 voice of Socrates winds up on both sides of this question. Mm -hmm. Now, that depiction goes all the way back to Homer, because Plato's criticism or Plato's Socrates criticism of the depiction of the gods in this way is a criticism of Homer and an argument that Homer ought to be censored. Um, and if the majority of Greece at the time believed, uh, embraced Homer, which we have every reason to believe that they did. He was like widely loved even in his own time, let alone several hundred years later. Um, that depiction of the gods as sometimes uh, unlikable. Ares was not a good god in, in many ways. Uh, he, Aphrodite had her shortcomings, we can say, uh, as did Hera and Zeus for that matter. Um, you know, the, the, if I think if, if Socrates believed in Apollo, it was, if, if not in a way similar to many other Greeks in his time, which is not to say in a Christian way, exactly, but um, it would have been very familiar to the way that Nietzsche describes the Apollonian spirit mm -hmm. that, that like the pursuit of that way of living hmm. and i mean and then the way that they praise i'm jumping dialogues a little bit to make the point but the way that they praise eros in the symposium is by giving philosophical explanations of what love is and, and so the, the praise looks different the god looks different it's much more conceptualized and um i mean that that seems to be very common uh, not just in Greece, but in in other kind of polytheistic pagan societies more broadly. Um, but when he talks about the gods of the city, it might be going back to that whole comedy question of like, does he not accept the same premises we do? Does does he have the gall to explore if democracy is good rather than accepting it as axiomatically good because the like if socrates is not being sincere it is equally true i think that the prosecution is not being sincere he's accused of impiety he's accused of corrupting the minds of the youth 
but the real reason that they're prosecuting him is political. There was a, you know, the Athenians lost the Peloponnesian War to Sparta. Sparta installed a puppet state, which was called the 30 Tyrants, which lasted for a short period of time before they were kicked out. And they were, they were, that was not a good time for Athenians. It was like 18 months, I want to say, of um, attempting to impose like a Spartan ideals on Athenians who like their freedom and like their citizenship. And um, it, uh, another writer I heard recently said that um, Critias, who, who was one of the 30 tyrants and one of Socrates' students, um, really was what sort of, we'll say, NPC progressives think Hitler was. Like what they, their worst caricature of Hitler, Critias actually was that um, in, in terms of how, how awful he was. So that connection to Socrates probably had a lot more to do with why they were going after him. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, uh, it's never quite the reason, you know, like, <laughs> right. I mean, not to be, people always are going to say we're going to take, talk about Trump when there's like a million show trials going on right now. But the, First thing that pops in my head was like no one actually cares how much Mar-a-Lago was valued at. <laughs> like right. like that, that has nothing to do with anything for anyone. Yeah, yeah like, well, uh, we can create a fraud case out of a judge acting like a realtor. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. yeah absolute ridiculousness. Yeah. Uh but yeah, it's never about the 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 thing when it comes to a yeah. public figure like that. Uh so it's it's just what what can we get them on? Uh and yeah. that's that seems like the the case uh, corrupting the youth. Uh, and, you know, uh, well, and that dovetails a little bit into, and I don't want to get into the Republic. Um, there's a lot to say there, but that's, that's a huge other topic. On that's a much bigger problem. But, yeah. but at one point towards the end of the apology, Socrates does say, um, you know, I always aspired for the private life. Do you not think I would know how, how short of a lifetime I would have? if I tried to be a public person and in some of the dialogues he is recorded as having later by Plato, um, he seems to be trying to encourage other young men to pursue the private life and mm -hmm. not the public life, not the political life. Contrary to what a lot of modern Platonists believe, you know, uh, he seemed to view the private life not just as a personal calling, but as almost morally superior to the to the public life in many ways. And um, I think if there is any relevance to the exploration of what is justice and what are these things, um, there is a question to be had: like, what is it? that the people who are getting involved in these protests and winding up in show trials, perhaps like Socrates, what is it that they were trying to preserve? Was it justice as the objective rule of law that preserves civilization? Or is it justice as a virtue? Or is it what justice really was historically, which was just vengeance? Mm -hmm. And I think what we're beginning to see is that the confusion of those three things gets people into a lot of trouble um, very quickly. And you can end up defending things that you didn't 
didn't realize you were defending and getting caught up in battles that you didn't realize you were getting caught up in. And people think that they're defending this objective rule of law that perhaps was an illusion this whole time. And the best that they, the real options they had were between virtue and vengeance. Um, it's a real possibility that seems to be brought up in um, both these dialogues and other dialogues. I feel like Credo in particular hits, hits the point home very hard um, as far as like the virtue uh, and marrying the political with the personal in terms of patriotism and submitting to the rule of law, which was a very, a very interesting, but also a uh, sort of a leading line of thinking as well. Yeah, that, yeah, I remember having discussions with some of the guys in the Order of Fire about that, and it came down to, yeah, the patriotism angle. It seemed very unconvincing, uh, you know, in terms of, uh, <laughs> like, uh, well, I don't know if that, I guess the point I wanted to bring up, and I brought it up in a little bit in the newsletter the other day, but uh, I think it's a good, oh, yeah, that's what I was going to make that Instagram post about. Uh, but, uh, <laughs> I was like, I knew I had something. Uh, but because uh, I think it's a good thing to think about is, uh, you know, your story. And I think that really <clears throat> one of the subtexts, I think, when, when so Socrates is defending why he's not going to escape and run around, you know, to, to different places, to different cities and so forth. I think one of the big things that's almost impl implied there in a little bit of his language is that, you know, he's thinking about his, his story. Like, what is the story of this man? And uh, the story of this man, like this old man running from place to place um, because he's been accused, because he's basically a convicted murderer. And that, well, no, no, sorry, not he's not convicted murderer, but he's a, he's a, basically a convict that's been in uh, convicted of impiety. to death. Yeah, yeah, convicted of bullshit. But like, so he's gonna go from of kind of a treasony kind of thing. So uh, he's gonna be uh, you know running around insurrection almost. <laughs> <laughs> we just went down the outside. Uh, but <laughs> but uh, yeah, I mean, if he obviously you know, the stirring people up, you know, in a in a way, and uh, <clears throat> but the story of him would be, you know, like there's a 70 year old man. He's going to go from place to place under cover of darkness. You know, uh, and and evade the authorities while his kids still live in uh, uh, in Athens and are educated in Athens and whatever, because that kind of what's discussed is that like, well, you're I'm not going to pull my kids out of school or whatever you would call it. Uh, you know, like uh, I'm not going to move my kids around with me. And I and I think that's the weird. I still think it's the weirdest thing about uh, Socrates that you just don't hear about is the fact that he's 70 years old and he has two young children. Um, and that's all like, I don't hear of him. He, did he have more children or is just a, like he's 70. He just all of a sudden has two young children. Like, like, well, how'd that go down? What that, what's that life story about? Like well, uh, if, if it's any insight into his situation, yeah. Socrates has this famous line where he's asked by a young man, if he should marry and Socrates says, by all means, marry. If you get a good wife, you'll have a happy life. And if you get a bad wife, you'll become a philosopher. <laughs> so, um, may, may, maybe not an insight into philosophy, but maybe an insight into Socrates. Um, perhaps, perhaps, perhaps. Which is funny, you know, maybe that's why 
That's exactly <laughs> interesting. Uh, something just came full circle for me. Uh, no, uh, there's a, a guy from the Manosphere who I like very much. He's an architect uh, who goes by the name of Socrates and has for many years. And uh, and so he, I wonder if that's uh, one of the reasons that he, uh, he's a very smart guy, obviously, as well. Uh, but I wonder if that's that specific quote is one of the reasons why, you know, like, uh, I mean, he ended up, ended up uh, eventually uh, he did get married like several years ago and he has a, a daughter and he's very pro that uh, now. But I mean, maybe he probably wasn't in uh, when he started, you know, like because uh, he's an older yeah. guy and he, he, yeah, he very similar. I mean, he's he's probably pushing 60 and he has a you know a, a young daughter and and uh, so interesting. Oh, it, sorry, that just came together for me because yeah. <laughs> I I've hung out at his house a few times. Well, fantastic dude. Well, and, and and sort of related to that, I guess, or maybe not, but it triggered the thought in, in my head. It, it you started by saying it's it's interesting to see how uh, like repetitious this seems. It's like oh, we're seeing the same thing today that was happening twenty four years ago. Yes. It can be very hard to know the difference between. Uh, what was captured 2,400 years ago that is transcendentally true about humans and about existence and that we're just seeing the repeat? Or was some kind of precedent set by the thing that we're writing and we're, we're seeing a repetition of something that was set out 2,400 years ago, not something that existed prior to it, but um, we're, we're seeing uh, basically well, to borrow from another podcast theme, uh, sorcery uh, at work in the creation of the world that we live in. And we're just now reading through the source code, as it were, rather than some kind of observer's description. Possibly. I tend to generally go with the, I mean, there are certain obviously ideas that come into the world and, and become viral uh, in, in a certain way. Um when it comes to things like human nature, like that, though, uh, and, uh, <laughs> the quote about like, if yeah. you have a good wife, you'll be, you'll be happy. If you have a bad wife, you yeah. become a philosopher. That sounds deeply human. Uh, <laughs> yeah. that, that That's maybe more transcendental. Yeah. Yeah. But, yeah. Yeah. But the, it is interesting to see, to compare philosophical traditions. Uh, Alfred Whitehead. I think I might be getting that name wrong, famously said that the history of Western philosophy is a footnote to Plato. Mm -hmm. And what he meant was that Plato basically set the tone and established the subjects of philosophical inquiry in the West. And that Western part is significant because you don't see it necessarily in the same way in, for example, Chinese philosophy mm -hmm. and in other civilizations like the, the way the Greeks conceptualized the immortality of the soul, for example, mm -hmm. was like very, very unique to um, the the Greek view. Um, other other civilizations had notions of immortality. You know, there's those like reincarnation in India and then the other things like that. Ancestor. Yeah, we talked about the Sumerians before because they, right. they're, they're weird thing where they're sitting in bird costumes forever. Yeah, like uh, yeah, yeah. And like the Egyptians had their own thing, but mm -hmm. the but the Greek notion of this like heroic immortalization mm -hmm. um, is very uh, is very unique, and it and it dovetails into philosophy is in some way married to philosophy by Socrates. 
Mm-hmm. And it's done so exactly in the apology. Because if I was a Greek citizen, an Athenian citizen, I think the thing that would have offended me most would have been Socrates directly comparing himself to Achilles. The Iliad, you, you know, like the, the Havamal is not like the Bible, you know, right. in many ways. The Iliad was like the Bible to the ancient Greeks in many ways. And so to, to, for, for Socrates to compare himself to Achilles is kind of a lot like hearing someone compare themselves to Jesus today. It, it's like, if you are a believer, you will probably be very offended and like, what, what the hell do you think you're talking about? Um, but it, it mattered to um, Socrates. And curiously enough, he through philosophy rather than through great deeds of martial prowess through his aristeia on the battlefield was able to achieve a great deal of immortality through the work, which is why we're talking about him now. And, um, and philosophy has acquired that association in a strange way. Um, and in a way that kind of hasn't been lost since then. Well, I mean, I think there's something about the preservation of the written word as well mm-hmm. uh, that it leads to because uh, actually my retweet thing, Kate retweeted the thing the other day and you you you, you retweeted it as well. Uh, you know, that the writing a book is the best way to uh, still the best way to upload your consciousness. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, and that's what they did. You know, basically they uploaded their consciousness well, in, in, into the system. Uh, it, it, you know, the big system of human knowledge and exchange and right. uh, the written word. Uh, but they were able but to achieve more mortality through that. Right. Well, Plato did. Yeah. Socrates is an interesting one because not only did he never write anything down. Right. He was actually critical of writing. He, he okay. very famously said that, uh, oh, the... the he was in, in response to hearing some story about Toth bringing the gift of writing to some other kingdom far away. He said, mm-hmm. uh, you, you think that is a gift, but in fact, it's a curse because it'll make everyone forgetful and unable to think. And so the, it's a weird moment of transition kind of where, I mean, the, Homer really was this because Homer was perhaps the great first poet that got written down. But, um, you know, culturally that takes time, you know, the Gutenberg press didn't arrive and then everyone's reading books the next day. Um, But there's this point of inflection where Greek culture shifted from being an oral culture to a written culture. And Socrates was still perhaps in his Homeric uh, composition and performance, um, you know, connection. Uh, still very much in that oral mindset and immortalization was possible through stories, through oral traditions, but it was, it required a lot more of a living tradition. Whereas a book can sit dormant like some HP Lovecraft horror for hundreds of years and then reemerge, uh, you know, (laughs) out of the depths when it's rediscovered and create something like the enlightenment. I feel attacked (laughs) (laughs) as an author. I feel attacked. Uh, But uh, No, I mean, absolutely. One thing there's a, there's a conflict that I've noticed a little bit um, among 
orators and uh, writers. Hmm. Uh, to a certain extent, people who are better at orators and because there are certain people who can just I mean, and that was a skill in the ancient days. I mean, I always talk about the Germanic material, the skalds and whatever, and and really rappers uh, today, dudes who can literally speak in rhyme wittily at speed and yeah. on beat like like instantaneously. That is a magical skill uh, that yeah. like obviously some of these guys had. And and there are a lot of guys who are just, you know, public speaking. I mean, uh, I always joke that, like, I still can't believe I went to a Jordan Peterson thing and he, that dude just sells out a thing got that. and rolls, just rolls up. And I'm like, I wonder what I'll talk about today. And phew, like, yeah. oh, I just, you know, do it to a whole basketball stadium. Uh, yeah. I mean, that's, that's, that, that takes huge balls to me. But uh, I guess if you're confident in it and you do it, whereas, like, uh, I feel like my best work is always, uh, would probably be the trickery kind. Uh, I guess uh, where you can, you have the time with it and you can say something really eloquent and good in just the perfect way. But I can't, that doesn't come out of my mouth. I talk like a drunk sailor, uh, but, <laughs> in, uh, but when I'm writing, I'm like, uh, uh, technos. Yes. Yeah. 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 Very, very direct. Uh, but uh, it, when I'm writing, I mean, I can come up with like uh, a liter. I'm like, this is amazing alliteration. Like, like I'm like, yeah. wow. You know, I can't do that in real life. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. There it, it's, it's fascinating to think about all the, all the, the pros and cons of writing versus speech. Just generally, I, I heard one other writer um, in the Christian blogosphere who mm -hmm. said you couldn't trust people who are gifted speakers. Um, and he was talking about Jordan Peterson in particular, because they flow from one point to the next, to the next, and they carry you with them. And it's very easy to forget what they said five minutes prior. Yeah. And they can, and they can walk you through emotionally. Whereas if they, if you write something down, someone who's reading it can read through. And if, if there's any discontinuity, any incoherence, it's much easier to, go back and check and spot. And so he said he actually trusts good writing better more than good speaking. Well, so I like that about him. Good at that was a good point he made. <laughs> uh, <laughs> well, it, it, there is something yeah. mathematical about writing in the sense of the, you know, it, it, here's a paragraph, here's a paragraph, period paragraph. This one better make sense with that one or it, the whole thing right. doesn't work. And uh, I, you know, it has to, it has to flow, but where he's like, yeah, I guess that is a good argument of if you're, if you're, if you're a speaker, you're a little bit more like a salesman, right? Because uh, salesmen can tell a story and make you feel a certain way, but not necessarily, they don't actually have to yeah. say anything that makes sense. You and, know? and if there's any, if there's any artistic case on the enjoyment of reading these platonic dialogues, it's mm -hmm. the, it's the way they manage to seem to merge both. Cause what you have is, phenomenal speaking and sometimes phenomenal dialogue oftentimes it's just a blah 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 yeah. why yes blah 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 and then a longer monologue is like well certainly blah 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 long monologue again is like why well, i guess that follows and it's this kind of weird hypnotic uh walking the the fake you know alter uh interlocutor through this sequence that never happens in real life but some of the some of the back and forths are real, um, like Euthyphro. Like there's there's an actual exchange of ideas there, and what's startling about reading these Socratic dialogues or Platonic dialogues is the the memory of Socrates 
from the beginning of the book to the end of the book feels almost superhuman. Uh, it, it is, it is the feeling and the form of speaking, but with the benefit of that consistency of, of having been written down and, and checked and everything. Um, so it's a, it's a, as a, as a matter of style, the platonic dialogues, um, a, a, regarding Socrates death and the other ones as well are, are a fascinating sort of artistic exploration of, of kind of both of those things as well. Well, I mean, that's what you do as a biographer too. I mean, like there's a, mm. there's people who are taken with a character and they flesh them out as a character and, and you know, like they give us a, they give us a take on, on who that guy was, you know, and everybody's, and you know, you'll see several different biographies that have different takes. Like, uh, I'm sure there are different takes on George Washington than the book that I read, but I really like that take. <laughs> like, was, that was guy the, had a very specific take. Ron Chernow had a very good, uh, like, yeah. yeah, he had a very, uh, he's a very good biographer. Yeah. Yeah. He had a very, a very good take on, uh, on George Washington, but uh, you know, like obviously there's some probably anyone's going to have like, they're not objective. Yeah. You know, you're going to have your own, you know, what you think of that character is going to come through right. into that. You know, like, so uh, it's your analysis of it, you know, like for, you know, like me writing the, the you know, if I was going to write the, you know, biography, of that guy who's accusing his dad, I'm like, hey, you, you did, you got some daddy it's issues, right, you're, yeah. you want some money, <laughs> like, you know, like, uh, you know, but that might not be true, but that's my take, that's, that'd be my take. So it, it's just, interesting. I mean, like, you know, obviously Plato had his feelings about Socrates, you know, and uh, yeah. like, as he wrote that down, I mean, that was his. That's how he characterized this man. Probably not unbiased. No, I mean, why would it be? Who, who's right? Uh, show me a man without bias. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's uh, it's absolutely a, a thing. So I'm sure that he did have some of that as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But uh, why don't we? Because uh, why don't we hit on the thing you wanted to bring up well, about the archetypes? It sort of dovetails in with the bias thing too because okay. you know there's there's the bias for socrates but then we we mentioned nietzsche briefly earlier mm-hmm. there are certainly arguments against socrates and, and nietzsche very famously uh probably the 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 maybe even topping aristophanes as a critic of socrates mm-hmm. um and he accused socrates of essentially banishing dionysus he said that the the peak mm-hmm. the golden age of Greek civilization came from the artistic fusion of the spirit of Apollo and Dionysus Mm -hmm. and Socrates as a, as a servant of Apollo of sorts um, was so single-mindedly set on his mission of, of rationality and and more important than rationality, rational justification for anything. Nietzsche at one point says like the, the Socratic principle is that which cannot be explained is not known. Whereas like, you know, you have all kinds of things. Animals know things without being able to explain them. Uh, any kind of natural at, a, at an art or a sport or a skill won't be able to explain how they do it. But that doesn't well, mean they that, don't know. That's the actually, that's the terrible thing about uh, the modern, uh, uh, I, I'm all hesitant to use the word modern around you because we have this contention about it. <laughs> But, uh, <laughs> but uh, the, uh, uh, the, I would say really 20th century more than anything, but you could tie it back to Socrates, the quote that you just said. Mm-hmm. Um, but this idea that anything that can't be measured by science 
yet. If there isn't the scientific, uh, uh, then yet, it's not true. Then yeah. it's not true. Then they're exactly. throwing everything before the 20th century out, out with the bathwater, basically, because right. you could because we can't explain it yet. Well, and 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 Nietzsche's Nietzsche's criticism of Socrates dovetails directly thereafter into a criticism of science, which he thinks is basically systematized spiritual Socratism, hmm. um, which, I mean, I wrote about in that essay on Pater for people who want to read it on the spiritual origins of science. It hmm. goes into that in detail. That's um, a really good one, by the way, that I, like, I, I just always remember the beast things, but yes. Yes. <laughs> well, thank you. Um, the, Schmidt is such a hero. <laughs> um, but, uh, like he basically accuses Socrates of, of banishing Dionysus, who is this God of the music of the fields and of the flutes. And is this slightly terrifying, but also this vivacious life force. And it's this kind of unconstrained life force um, that is uh, anathema to this idea of, of, I have to understand everything. I have to conceptually capture and be able to articulate a thing in order for it to be true, in order for it to be real. Um, you know, you get a you get a maybe a taste of extremity in the other direction when Plato was trying to define man as a um, a featherless biped, and Diogenes of Sinope runs and is like, "Behold the man!" And he's got this plucked chicken that he's flailing around, and it's like. That's that, that 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 that's maybe some some Dionysian spirit there to <laughs> balance out the this um you know extreme Apollonian desire for everything must be constrained and, and bound by words and so forth. But there's a there's an interesting parallel within the context of um you know solar idealism. We talk about these three archetypes, the the father, the striker, and the lord of the earth. And Socrates is of course very much a a father figure in a lot of different ways. He's like the father of Western philosophy, um, literally a father and also was a soldier. And he, uh, aside from fighting in the phalanx and speaking about it in the apology, he also, um, you know, fought with people verbally <laughs> his whole life, basically. Mm -hmm. And um, was very annoying about it. And it, it seems like the thing he was lacking was mm -hmm. all of the, all of the dimensions of the Lord of the earth which just visually and aesthetically ties in to the, this Dionysian satyr kind of character the, the associated with life, fertility, um, business in some cases, but also maintaining relationships and friendships. Mm -hmm. Like Socrates' extreme disagreeableness was kind of anathema to, to that. Um, and I guess to, to throw one more dichotomy into, into these archetypal comparisons, I, I wrote a little bit about the, the archetype of the hero that we see with Achilles against the archetype of the man. Mm -hmm. And I, I chose those words based on the opening lines, which are very thematically significant. The first word in the Odyssey is Andra, man, tell me muse of that man. Because mm -hmm. um, Odysseus is an archetypal man. He is a lord of the earth. He does not speak a technos. He's very um, polutropon, you know, this way and that way. He's very, and Achilles even accuses him of being tricky in that way. Very, mm -hmm. very roughly. Um, he's very 
mean about it. And, and you see that, interestingly, in, again, the Apology, where Socrates not only compares himself to Achilles and aspires for a similar kind of spirit there, but condemns Odysseus as a, basically an unrighteous man mm-hmm. towards the end. Uh, and, and he's looking forward to the afterlife where he gets to ask questions of the heroes of the past. And he, he'll get to interrogate Odysseus about why did you unjustly kill Ajax or, um, or whoever it was. And um, the, that rejection of Dionysus that Nietzsche identified mm-hmm. seems to parallel with the rejection of the man more broadly as an archetype and of the Lord of the earth. All of these more mundane earthly things. And um, perhaps that rejection, which ties into the rejection of money, he was poor, and of human relations and of wealth, maybe got him killed. And we might, you know, who aspire to, to be better ourselves, perhaps, uh, perhaps we won't go down in history as famous philosophers, but perhaps we might have better lives <laughs> if, we, uh, if we don't reject that archetype. And perhaps our civilization will be better too, because Nietzsche basically accused him of ruining Greek civilization, um, and and said, you know, this was before his big breakup with Richard Wagner. He he thought Germany was in a unique position to maybe bring back the union between Apo- the spirit of Apollo and Dionysus. You need both to make right. good art, to make good culture, and Socrates and the cultural dominance of Socrates kind of ruined that. Um, and I, th- I think he was looking at the, the romanticism of that time and saying, oh, maybe there's a, a seed of something. Maybe we need a little bit more Apollo, but like we can, we can, we can work with this into, into something uh, truly, you know, golden age, uh, you know, age of not, not classical era, but like age of Homer um, Greek levels of cultural beauty and accomplishment. Um, I, that might be a little grand for, uh, you know, individuals, but perhaps the principle works the same way with individuals. And perhaps um, Plato, who is much more circumspect about Odysseus, um, gets closer to that balance and say, maybe, maybe we can we can have a little bit of all three. Maybe we can have our, our balanced chariot um, with with the you know the logos, the, the passions and the, and the uh, appetites in harmony rather than um, the other, the other, I'm sorry, I'm going on so long. Um, you know, Socrates was famous. If Dionysus and the Lord of the earth have anything to do with the appetites, Socrates was famous for being able to stand outside in the cold, completely unmoved in wearing very little and could go for long periods without eating was basically completely unaffected by alcohol um was just this absolutely had had completely conquered his desires and his appetites in this way um, oh, i didn't realize that. i mean he was i mean obviously in these stories he's very yeah doesn't have any money uh yeah and he's very whatever but i didn't realize that 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 level of asceticism was a uh, part of his whole shtick very much. Um, yeah, because that's, I mean, obviously, yeah, that's that uh, definitely puts him in firmly in the borderline autistic. And uh, <laughs> like, <laughs> I mean, really in the, the puritanical camp of like yeah. pure, pure logic and reason and nothing else and no, uh, no, 
uh, uh, well, what is that thing about like, we'll make a dull boy? I, I don't know, like uh, all work and no play. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It's uh, I feel like that seems like uh, yeah. his 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 uh, descriptive of him. Um, well, uh, autism yeah. is a funny one because Nietzsche's psychoanalytic diagnosis of Socrates was that um, whereas every other man creates by impulse creates by um naturally mm -hmm. but it takes it takes effort and conscientiousness to be like i think this is wrong and, and they'll, they'll they'll think something like oh no that's not quite right he says with socrates that impulse is reversed it it he has that demon that inner voice that tells him no instinctively to bad arguments to things he shouldn't say to things other people say um but when he wants to create, he has to sit down and think through and very effortfully put together something. And the best he can put together, which we, we read about in Phaedo at the very end, is he, he makes some verse translations of Aesop's fables, um, which in Nietzsche's opinion are like the most ham-fisted moralizing tales ever. There's nothing artistic about that. Um, so like if the Greek if the beauty and accomplishment of the Greek culture came from that impulse to create, then Socrates excessive Apollonian um, desire for clarity destroyed that. And it destroyed it in himself first. Interesting. So, yeah, um, I mean, it, it, there's definitely something there, I think in terms of, in, it's interesting when it's applied to Socrates, but just generally speaking, that Dionysian element in man, I mean, that's what they, you know, from the Homeric hymns about the Dionysus, if you forget me, you forget to how to, how to, how to write a sweet song. Yes. Is in there. And uh, so I mean, it's, and that's true. And I see that really, uh, you know, in the contemporary aspect there's been a big problem with men generally, and especially men being inhibited, being inhibited. Uh, and I've, I've kind of linked it to the idea of, of uh, sex pollution is the thing like they mm. can't do anything that women do. So if women like art, then they can't like it. Right. Uh, you know, like that's, which is kind of part, part of a problem. I think, it, you know, in the way that uh, I think I've mentioned recently that they can't, men aren't allowed to do theater in America, which is why we also have nobody who can act uh, heroic roles. Right. Uh, you know, we have nobody who does Shakespeare. <laughs> so who are you going to hire? Uh, you know, like the, they don't do that in high school. And the only Henry Cotter knows okay. But he's English. Oh, that's true. Yeah. In American, sure. <laughs> American yeah, we, we import all of our heroes. Uh, yeah. Like all the men who can have the gravitas to play those roles are almost all, aside from, I mean, the best we have, and this is very telling because he's also generally regarded as being kind of off and weird, is uh, what that... Uh, uh, I mean, there, there are other ones, but they're more like the young, fun heroes. They're not necessarily like the ones with the gravitas. Um, Clint Eastwood, but, but he's kind of old. Yeah, he's kind of old. I mean, that's a different era. And that's yeah. before I think that this was true. You could still, I think you could still do theater in Clint, in Clint Eastwood's age. Yeah. Uh, but uh, no, uh, uh, what Ryan, what's his face? Who was Ryan in, Gosling? Uh, yeah, Ryan Gosling. Is, <laughs> we get Ryan Gosling. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> You know, he's, of, he's a little different in drive than he is in Barbie. Right, right. Ryan, Ryan Gosling and Keanu Reeves is what we <laughs> – instead of like dudes yeah. who can be like, yes, sir. 
you know, like, you know, like and because you have to be able yeah. to do Shakespeare to be able to That's do like or some of these ancient things, you know. Arnold, Austrian. Yeah. Mel Gibson, Australian. Russell isn't Russell Crowe Australian too? Very Australian. Damn it. Around the world. Uh <laughs> but uh, uh yeah, yeah. Uh yeah. but well, we do have uh Sylvester Stallone. <laughs> is is a you know, but uh, yeah, it, it, it's a thing. It, it definitely yeah. is a thing. We put most of our, our actors that play our heroes, but uh, yeah. but because I think we've lost touch with that uh, male creativity, and you see that yeah. a lot. And uh, it's worth uh, noting that Dionysus is also the god of the theater, of course, among yes. other things. Yeah. <laughs> yes, that is true, and uh, and uh, yeah, it, you also see that. In a big way, I think, because I think the the, Purit the Puritanism of American culture, which is very uh, Protestant, and the, the Puritanism and, the, and, and that that uh, that kind of Protestant evangelical aesthetic that yeah. populates a, the, a big portion of the country, especially the part in which conservatism lies and gets all of its money, um, that's they create nothing. Yeah, they, they can't create art. Yeah. Uh, they, you know, I, I have to go back and read the Birth of Tragedy again now because my my recollection was that a, I mean, as harsh as his criticisms of Socrates are, uh -huh. a lot of it is vicarious for the influence Socrates had on a certain playwright, which is Euripides. Mm -hmm. They said in the same way that Socrates, so Socrates basically killed culture by turning Euripides into an anti-artist mm -hmm. um, and a theater, um, a, a, a playwright where everything had to be conscientious where everything had to be, um, you know, explicated very directly. Uh, gone was show, not tell. Now it's tell. Um, yeah. And it's, it, it he said there there was like a moment where Euripides flipped back and did a good play. And that was the Bacchae, which is mm. about Dionysus. Of course. Um, but in general, he said so Socrates ruined culture by ruining the theater. So it is just interesting that you brought that up. Yeah, it makes perfect sense. I mean, it's, it's in terms of, yeah, that kind of dry analytical stuff. Well, that was what I've, I've kind of been saying is that they can't produce anything that's not didactic. Mm -hmm. Yeah, like it has to be like, here's our ham-fisted point in the way that in the way that actually the the far left's art has become unwatchably boring. Yeah, in terms of because it used to have, be okay, it used to it used be to be great. They made the best art. Yeah, uh, you know, like uh, you know, but uh, it was very Dionysian. You, you like in the age of the 1970s, the Rolling Stones, and like oh, that's that's a whole different era. And now you have like, like telling you who has to be included and has to like all the rules that you have to impose on it and, and it's everything become it becomes, Apollonian. It's become, yeah, exactly. It's become Apollonian in this weird yeah. way. Uh, and so like what you really need is a, is a rise of the, the Dionysian anti, I hate left and right because yeah. they don't mean anything, but like the, uh, the, 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 that human, that Lord of the earth, that, yeah. that creative impulse that's uninhibited by yeah. the lines and boundaries of, which can be kind of scary and it's not um in some ways it's not as masculine in in some ways which well, is that's, like, why, that's why i actually like this economy and i think that remember i said it that was going to be my essay for the when we work on the put their book but uh 
it's, I mean, there's a very masculine impulse to order everything. Obviously, mm-hmm. I mean, I wrote a book that said something like that. Uh, you know, <laughs> men do like order and they want right. to order things. And I think good art it really has to be ordered. It, it has to be. Um, yeah. Because yeah, otherwise it has no structure. I always say that it's so much easier to paint an 18 by 24 than it is to like, if you gave somebody infinite space, that's impossible to deal with. 18 yeah, by 24, you? I can figure out. Yeah. <laughs> you know, if you give someone an assignment, like, okay, I can figure that out. Just paint anything. You know, like, it, it, that's much scarier. Uh, so yeah. I, I think you need you, you need some kind of order imposed on art for it to exist. But uh, there's right. also, you know, you do need that kind of, I mean, that humanness, really. I mean, I, a, I don't think it is feminine. Yeah. What? There's a balance. Oh, well, and that's the thing about um, Dionysus, too, is he's not he's not feminine either. He's sort of androgynous. He's this this merging point between the two. Yeah. And um, which is very Camille Paglia. Yes. Uh, <laughs> that, yeah. He might be called a sexual persona. Well, uh, but, <laughs> but yeah, I mean, I, I, I'm I have a, a hunch that Camille Paglia might have read. Nietzsche at some point. Um, Possibly. Uh, that's like I said, that's yes. where I learned about you know, Apollonian Dionysian with sexual personality. Right. But uh, but yeah, no, but it just to, you know, I have to wrap it up, but it, it's uh it is it's an earthiness. Mm-hmm. And it's a realization. I mean, like as we can be as scientific and like sterile about things as he's tried to be, but really what they are, as we've talked about many times, is they become deniers of the body. Yes. Like we're made of flesh and blood they, and we have desires and like just uh, purely in the word and the idea when you exclude that Lord of the earth. Exactly. exactly. And you don't see the, the, you know, like you're afraid of the body. I mean, like, I mean, all the, that's why people look back at the Greek art to a certain extent. It's like the first, yeah. there's, there's people like, Oh, they made beautiful bodies. And they're like, you know, and it's, it's what people want to see. And I it's mean, well, you know, one of the, the points you sort of joked about but maybe not totally joking a few weeks ago you're like how much of this is just socrates being old and ugly <laughs> yeah. it's, it's like i mean yeah uh, ugly people hate beauty in a, in a weird way they're jealous of it in a, in a strange yeah. way uh they you know it's like uh i, I do think i mean who knows if that can uh if that that has yeah. anything to do with this you don't yeah. want to make that it, it makes fun. it makes a like, fun joke if nothing else but it's yeah. also something worth thinking about and something that you pick up in Nietzsche's writing a lot on, on these sorts of things about mm-hmm. how, you know, the, uh, where, where Socrates says, Oh, if you get a bad wife, you're likely to become a philosopher. Nietzsche said, if you are unhealthy, if you have poor health, you are more likely to become a philosopher to, to write away, to, to explain away these health problems. And that, right. and that creates an unfortunate asymmetry in philosophy more broadly as well, where we get all kinds of interesting figures, not least of which being Nietzsche himself. Um, well, yeah. What's, what's nice about Nietzsche in that perspective is that he's self-aware because Nietzsche has yes. shitty health. Uh, right. you know, like that's a self-awareness thing. And I like self-awareness from people. Uh, it, my favorite, one of my favorite qualities in people generally is a self-awareness enough to know that you can still acknowledge what is good without having to be it. Yes. Uh, which is rare in people because they, everybody has to make everything about themselves. And if whatever I am is the best, 
or to say that out loud to make people make themselves and everyone else believe it. And instead of just trying to imagine what is actually good, you know, I think that takes a special kind of, uh, you know, and and it's a good thing to remember. It doesn't apply in every case. Like Nietzsche, I think is a good exception, but I was listening to um, a gentleman. We both like very much uh, Sam Harris interview uh <laughs> interviewing uh david benatar mm-hmm. who is the south african philosopher that advocates antinatalism okay now if you picture in your head what would what would a philosopher an academic philosopher who advocates antinatalism look like He's ugly just just shit. just put put that picture in your head <laughs> yeah. and, just like, and, and then google search him he looks exactly like you imagined he would look weird. Um, and, and so like, and, and that's, that's, you know, will be dismissed as ad hominem by, you know, people who go into that, but uh, like the pattern is still hard to overlook and it's worth remembering in terms of, you know, you begin with artistic values. Now I think that was really Nietzsche's great breakthrough and his great criticism of Socrates. It's like, mm-hmm that there is an unstated aesthetic value that Socrates pretends not to have, which is to just contemplate his, his end goal is just the contemplation of things forever. Yes. Um, and perhaps there's more to life than that. Perhaps there are things of the earth that are worth doing. Um, and, and not uh, as Aristophanes characterized, just having your head in the clouds. Yeah, Absolutely. Absolutely. Cool. All right. Well, I think that's a good place to wrap it up. Uh, yeah. I mean, we could, you could talk about Socrates for, oh, a lifetime. But uh, and, Well, Socrates yeah. and Nietzsche, we could just go back and forth for a while. <laughs> yeah. um, and and uh, Apollo and Dionysus. But, uh, but uh, I think we should wrap it up there. But uh, I think this has been a really interesting conversation. And I think yeah. representative, I think, of some of the cool things that we do in the, the order of fire and uh, yeah. some of the conversations that we try to have with the guys I, I have, you know, when people are interested and willing to have them, we can, we can get into some, uh, some good stuff. Cause I think yeah. the idea of reinventing, not reinventing, cause I hate reinventing cause it always, that's a weird propaganda always, but the, uh, the idea of intentionally figuring out what we actually believe instead of trying to like inherit or, or write it down from somebody else and actually like doing the work. Yeah. Uh, I think is very, interesting exciting to be a place where you can do that in with some kind of honesty and intention um whereas i think and i think that's kind of what makes us unique like well what do we actually believe let's let's talk about justice and see what we actually think justice is (laughs) you know rather than like well clearly it's so and so because my you know this place people or that people believe it like well what let's hash it out right uh you know so i think that's that's a great place to be so Anyway, man, thanks for thanks for uh, coming on and uh, having this discussion again. Uh, yeah, it's been been a good one. So, see you guys later. Stay solar. Stay solar. Pater is the cultural arm of the Order of Fire. For more, visit ph2t3r.com.